Well, good morning and Happy New Year. Welcome to Central, where we seek transformation through renewal in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is committed to changing our lives, our community, and our world, and therefore so are we. My name is Charles Godwin. I am one of the pastors here. This coming week, many churches around the world celebrate Epiphany, marking the end of the season of Christmastide. Christmastide is a time when the church marks the birth and early days, even months, of Jesus' life. Epiphany is a day when the church celebrates the visit of the Magi, or the wise men from the East. Now, why is this a significant day? This particular day represents Christ for the gospel to the Gentiles, and not just to Israel, but it's the gospel for the world. Now, is the celebration of Advent and Christmastide mandated? No. Is it helpful? I believe it is, because it gives us a longer period of intentional reflection on the birth of Christ, who has come for, come for sinful, broken people, places, and things. So we continue this Sunday talking about the incarnation of Christ, who he is for us and why it's important. And we're going to do that by looking at a passage in Matthew 2 about the visit of the wise men from the east. So let me pray for us and then we'll read the scriptures. Holy Spirit, we pray for soft hearts. Help us not to harden our hearts and help us to see Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Our text is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of God who gives light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Over the years, and even this season, we've read or we've listened to pieces of the Christmas story over and over again. And one thing that strikes me 
is the multiple times we see the word behold or see in the story. Whether it's the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or when the angel comes to Mary, we see that phrase. Or to Joseph, or to the shepherds. And here in this passage, we see it not just once, but twice. Now, when we see this word or hear it, it gets our attention, right? Behold, see this thing. And that's the purpose. And in these stories, we get the sense that there are a lot of people that actually are amazed or captivated by Christ and his coming. So that begs the question for us. What captivates you? What captivates me? It's often not Christ and his coming, is it? What is it that commands our attention? What is it that I must have? And if I don't get it, or I don't have it, I'm undone, or I become irrational. Is it a person? Is it approval of a certain people group? Is it success? Is it a certain look or body type? Is it a thing? Is it comfort or ease? Is it an acknowledgement that you are right? Is it public vindication for some way you've been ill-treated? Is it a particular situation or a dream that if unrealized, then you are incredibly unhappy and so is everyone else around you? In our text today, we see the Magi, and they are captivated by the coming of Christ. Now, who are these Magi, these wise men from the East? Sources say they were religious experts. The Magi probably referred to people whose practices included things like astrology, the study of scriptures, pursuit of wisdom. They were seers and magicians. Now, these are religious men in the worldly sense. And they probably know the prophecies about the coming of Christ. They are captivated by this unusual star. And they have traveled a long way to see the child. In fact, history tells us that they probably traveled in a large caravan. Maybe just because it was so big, they could only make 15 to 20 miles a day. They probably traveled at least 800 miles, which would take them a minimum of 40 to 60 days. It's commitment. And then they see him, Jesus. And the Bible says they give him gifts and they worship him. Now, we don't know that it means they worship him as Savior or not. History tells us probably not. But it indicates that they know he is someone special for the world. And because of that, they do not go back and tell Herod his whereabouts. Now, we see another response here in our story, too, and that's the response of Herod who is threatened by the fact that this prophecy about the coming of Christ may be true. He is captivated by his own power and the adulation of men. The fact that another ruler would come 
and would command that attention undoes Herod. We see after this passage that he acts completely irrationally. When he realizes the wise men have not returned to him as he commanded, and he has all the male children in Bethlehem, two years old and under, killed. You think Herod's power was an idol to him? And when that idol is threatened, he acts like a lot of us do when our idols are threatened. He becomes undone and completely irrational. Now we're going to focus mainly today on the response of the wise men who are captivated by Christ, although we will touch a little more on Herod's response briefly. In our text, we have these wise men from the east, and they're following a star, which probably is because they know the prophecy that a star will come from Jacob. Then when they come searching, they refer to the words of the prophet Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They are captivated by the possibility that this star may lead to a new ruler and shepherd. And when they find him as a baby, rather than just dismiss the prophecies out of hand, they're actually more captivated and they worship him. Christ has come as ruler and shepherd of his people, of us. And as such, we should be captivated by him as well. So we're going to look at this today. Christ as ruler, and then Christ as shepherd of his people, and then talk for a few minutes about what that means for us. First, Christ has come as ruler. The text says, from Bethlehem shall come a ruler. Now, most people, including Herod, thought that this would be a mighty political ruler or a military ruler, a king or a judge who would rise up in some very spectacular fashion. That's what they were used to, a tangible adult ruler, someone of means and power, someone they could readily see, a ruler by their definition of the word. But the scriptures say that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This ruler and shepherd comes in the form of a baby. In poor conditions, a blue-collar dad, a mom seemingly pregnant out of wedlock. Not what was expected at all. And yet Christ is nevertheless ruler. God chooses the foolish to shame the wise. Paul writes to the Colossians where he says of Christ, and Pastor Clay preached on this a few weeks ago, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth 
or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ. Christ is the creator of heaven and earth. He is before all things. Christ is preeminent, surpassing all other things and all things both in heaven and on earth. He's not just over earthly rulers and things. He's also over spiritual rulers. He's the ruler of all rulers, right? The scriptures say he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He rules and he overrules for his glory. In him, all things hold together and there will be no end to his kingdom. In Daniel, we read, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So he puts, he puts earthly kings and rulers, good and bad, in places. And he can easily remove them. And as such a ruler of all rulers, he deserves our respect and our honor and our adulation, our captivation. The wise men gave it to him. Herod, on the other hand, was threatened by this idea of a ruler who would deserve more captivation than him. He was threatened by this idea that, some, that there would be someone else to whom he would have to submit. And so he acts irrationally, killing many to try to overrule God, which he is unable to do. With that in mind, let's ask these questions of ourselves about our struggles to submit to the kingship of Jesus. Is it a comfort to you that he rules and overrules in your life? In all of its seasons, good and difficult? Or does it feel like a threat? Do you live your life with open hands to the good rule of King Jesus? Or do you close them? Makes me think about the gold ring in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You remember the character Gollum? What does he call that ring? The precious? His love for that ring has seemingly destroyed him. You get this sense that he really is burdened by it. He thinks if he has it, all will be well, but look where it has taken him. He's a shell of the man that he was when he found it. So let's ask ourselves the questions I asked earlier. What captivates you? What captivates me? What is it that commands your attention? What is it that you must have, and if you don't get it or have it, you're completely undone? It seems that those things, and they can be good things or bad things, that we think will make our lives better, really can become a burden, a trap, a prison, rather than something or someone who will bring freedom, if we hold them tightly, rather than loosely. And when we hold them tightly, we become like Gollum. 
Christ has come as ruler. And it may seem foolish to us to submit ourselves to a ruler who rules and overrules in our lives for his glory and for our good. He has lived this life amidst all of its temptation, sin, and brokenness, and yet was without sin. And then he went beyond that and died the sinner's death that we deserve. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death for his sinful people. He now sits in heaven while we and this earth are being restored. And he will come again and all will be well. Submission to this ruler, Jesus, is what brings our true freedom. So I ask you, will you trust him as your good ruler? We also see in our passage, Christ has come as shepherd. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now a shepherd is a person who herds or tends and guards sheep. It's a person who protects and guides and watches over a person or a group of people. There are plenty of shepherd and sheep images in the Bible. Psalm 23 is probably the most familiar. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Listen to this description of what he does for us. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, Jesus, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Luke 15, so Jesus told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then John 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. And my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. From these passages, we learn several things about shepherds and sheep about Christ and us. One thing we learn is that good shepherds provide care and have compassion for the sheep. Another thing, good shepherds go after. They pursue lost sheep. 
The good shepherd is willing to lay down his life for the sheep. And Christ is our good shepherd. And friends, just as an aside, that's what our shepherds here at Central attempt to model their ministry for you after the shepherding ministry of Jesus. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. If you want to be connected to your shepherd, please come see me. And I would be happy to do that. What does that make us? Sheep. The prophet Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We go astray. That's what sheep do. And we need a shepherd And Jesus is the good shepherd of sinful, lost, broken sheep like us. Now being his sheep is not a position that we somehow earn or merit. Christ our shepherd himself earns that position for us by taking the punishment our sins deserve by his death on a cross. And he gives the position as his sheep to us as a gift. Paul writes, it's by grace we're saved. Not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by our works, so that no man can boast. We see Christ lays down his life, so we have life. We see in this passage we just heard from John 10. We also see where John writes, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we see this too about this relationship we have with our good shepherd. No one can snatch us out of his hands. Not even ourselves. We sometimes try, don't we? Nothing can separate us from Christ, our shepherd's love. So I ask you, will you trust him as your good shepherd? Christ is ruler and shepherd of his people. So what does that mean for us? First, I want us to think about the wise men. We don't know if they knew Christ as their Savior and Lord or not. However, their actions foreshadow Christ is worshipped by other nations. And that gives hope for us and for the world. And it also gives us a mandate or a mission that the gospel is for all nations. As those who are being restored, as those who have this hope in Christ, we are hope bearers. We read in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." And so, friends, one thing it means for us is that we must consider and act on this mandate. Now, what that means for you as an individual, I'm not sure. I'd certainly love to talk with you about that if you have that question to pray for and with you. It could mean a lot of things. It certainly means you go with the message of hope in Christ, with your words and your deeds and your presence to your family, to your neighbors, to your friends, to your coworkers. It could mean you go further. 
like Rachel Zebarth in Montana or Michael Miller and Lucy Wynn to Honduras or the Perez family to Portugal or Malia Bridewell, who we heard from just a few weeks ago, to France or the Futos to Hungary or Paul Billy Arnold to India. And the list could go on. It certainly means we support those who do go with our finances and our prayers. I want to encourage you to ask Christ, your good ruler and shepherd, to show you where you can bring the hope of restoration in Christ to bear and to make you willing to respond. It's this idea of holding your people and your things and your plans loosely. It's this idea of open hands. And know this, as you do go, wherever you go, Jesus is the one who writes hope in people's hearts and lives. You may bear the message, but he, not you, he makes it effective in people's hearts and lives. Secondly, I want us to think for a moment about being captivated by Jesus. It's not something that just happens. It didn't just happen for the wise men. They knew the prophecies. They studied them. I believe it took a great amount of their time and discipline. So with that in mind, we have to push back in our lives. Being captivated by Jesus takes time. It takes discipline. For us, one of the best opportunities we have to be captivated by Christ is through his word. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his reflections on Advent and Christmastide, wrote this, quote, Why is it that my thoughts wander so quickly from God's word? And that in my hour of need, the needed word is often not there. Do I forget to eat and drink and sleep? Then why do I forget God's word? Because I still can't say what the psalmist says, I will delight in your statutes. I don't forget the things in which I take delight. Forgetting or not forgetting is a matter not of the mind, but of the whole person, of the heart. I never forget what body and soul depend upon. The more I begin to love the commandments of God in creation and word, the more present they will be for me in every hour. Only love protects against forgetting. Because God's word has spoken to us in history and thus in the past, the remembrance and repetition of what we have learned is a necessary daily exercise. Every day, we must turn again to God's acts of salvation so that we can again move forward. Faith and obedience live, listen to this, on remembrance and repetition. Remembrance becomes the power of the present because of the living God who once acted for me and reminds me of that today. God doesn't love us more when we read his word or less when we do not. However, reading his word regularly, meditating on it, studying it, listening to it, all of these things help us to know and love him more, to be captivated by him and less by other things. And a result, as we're captivated by him, freedom. 
freedom from being captivated by other things that just simply do not satisfy. I read about a Lutheran hymn writer, Paul Gerhardt. He lived in the 1600s, and he was a man who was captivated by Christ. And he wrote these words, Brother, come from all that grieves you. You are freed. All you need, I again will bring you. And then the author of this article where I read this said, what does that mean? All you need, again, I will bring you. He says, nothing is lost. In Christ, everything is lifted up, preserved, to be sure in a different form, transparent, clear, freed from the torment of self-seeking desire. Christ will bring all of this again as it was originally intended by God without the distortion caused by our sin. I want to close with the words of another hymn written by Miss Ora Rowan, who in the 1800s wrote words that we sing as, Hast thou known him, seen him, heard him? She writes, Hast thou heard him, seen him, known him? Is not thine a captured heart? Chief among 10,000, own him. Joyful, choose the better part. What can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth? It's not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Tis the look that melted Peter. Tis the face that Stephen saw. Tis the heart that wept with Mary can alone from idols draw, captivated by his beauty, worthy tribute haste to bring. Let his peerless worth constrain thee. Crown him now, unrivaled king. May we be a people and a church because Christ has come as ruler and shepherd of his people of us that are captivated by him. Let's pray. God, we do pray these words that I just read, that we would be captivated by your beauty. Worthy tribute haste bring. That we would let your peerless worth constrain us and we would crown you both in our lives and in our world now as an unrivaled king. Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.